we're learning what it means to truly be followers of Jesus. We've learned that being a follower of Jesus involves a lot more than church membership, church attendance, and memorizing scripture. A true follower doesn't just learn from Jesus. They do what Jesus does. A true follower is allowing Jesus to change them, and they're committed to the mission of Christ. What is his mission? Anybody? What's his mission? His mission is very simple. His mission is to introduce others to him and help them become followers. That was the great commission. That was the final command he gave us. But our job isn't done once we lead someone to Christ. Did you know that Jesus actually never commanded us to make converts? Search the scriptures. He never said, go into the whole world and make converts. He didn't say, go into the world and get people saved. Of course, that's the first step in that. What he said was, go and make disciples. Go and make disciples. Our job is to teach others what we've learned. But that means we have to be learning ourselves. We can't pass on what we don't know. So we need to be lifelong learners. We need to constantly be learning more and then helping others to come to where we're at. But we always try to stay one step ahead of them because there's always another step we can take towards Jesus. We should be constantly learning and growing in our own relationship with Christ. And we should be constantly be teaching others what we've already learned ourselves. Today, we're going to talk about the time commitment that it takes to be a true follower of Jesus. Jesus is not looking for part-time followers. He's looking for people that will follow him and focus on his mission 24-7. I'm not saying everybody needs to quit their job and become a full-time pastor or become a full-time missionary. God does call some people into full-time career ministry. He's called me into career ministry. But... He wants all of us to be full-time ambassadors. Everything should be done. Everything should be done with a mission mindset. The underlying goal in everything we do should be to seek and to save the lost. We've talked about the last couple of weeks. That is why Jesus came. He said, I have come to seek and to save the lost. But then he discipled them afterwards. He passed that on to us, said, you are to take my mission and continue my mission. Seek and save the lost and train them what it means. Teach them what it means to follow me. Teach them how to be disciples. That means every part of our lives must come under the lordship of Jesus. If we're not careful, we will compartmentalize our lives and separate the spiritual part from the public or personal parts. Many people find it much easier to compartmentalize their lives in order to justify their inconsistencies and to ultimately do what they want to do. Kyle Eidelman put it this way in his book, Not a Fan. He said, one way fans try to follow Jesus without denying themselves is by compartmentalizing the areas of their lives that they don't want him to have access to. They try to negotiate the terms of the deal. I'll follow Jesus, but I'm not going to sell my possessions. Don't ask me to forgive people who hurt me. They don't deserve that. Don't ask me to save sex for marriage. I can't help my desires. Don't ask me to give a portion of my money. It's my money, not his. And instead of following Jesus with their financial life, they follow Money Magazine. In their relationships, instead of Jesus, they follow Oprah. 
And in their sex lives, instead of following Jesus, they follow Cosmo. They follow Jesus, but not with every part of their lives. If we're going to be true followers of Jesus, then he must be Lord over our entire lives. No part of our lives can be off limits. No part of our lives can be compartmentalized as a separate part of our life. Our whole life has to be under his lordship. Each of our lives can easily summarize and organize into four different spheres or four different worlds or four different categories. We're going to call them spheres this morning. These four spheres should not be seen as separate nor kept separate. Instead, they must be seen as one unit and we must be allowed, they must be allowed to intersect with and affect each other. The four main areas of our lives are our relationship with God, our relationship with the church or God's family, our relationships at home, and our relationship with the world. A growing and faithful disciple of Jesus strives to understand God's commands and submits to God's authority in all four of those spheres, not just one or not just two. Paul's letter to the Ephesians provides a good biblical foundation for each of these spheres. Now, we're not going to go through the whole book of Ephesians. That might be a study for another time to actually break Ephesians down. But we're going to do a quick snapshot of Ephesians. And I encourage you to go back this week during your personal devotions and read Ephesians. Because Ephesians talks about how Christ should be with us through all four of these areas. The first sphere is our relationship with God. And this one is central. In the first two chapters of Ephesians, Paul sets the tone for his letter by reminding us that we're adopted as spiritual children of our Heavenly Father. He reminds us that we've been born again spiritually, even though we have been dead in our sins, and that we had been under control of the God, little g, of this world. He declares that we're saved by grace through faith, and that even though we're not saved by good works, God has created us to do good works. Let me say that again. We're not saved by works, but we are created to do good works. Ephesians chapter 2 verse 10 says this, For we are God's handiwork, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. What Paul's saying is that once we become the new creation that he talks about in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 17, he says, if you're in Christ, you are a new creation. Old things are passed away. All things are become new. When he makes us into that new creation, we have a job to do. He recreates us for a purpose. Now think about it for a minute. Everything that has ever been created has been created for a purpose. Things don't usually get created by accident. They are created for a purpose. Everything that God created has its purpose. Every creation made by man has its purpose. Most things, and I say most, start with everything created by God, Everything created for God was created for good purpose. After every part of creation, God looked at it and said, it is good. 
And God designed everything to work together and every part to have its function. And if everything did what it was created to do, the world was a perfect place. It was like heaven on earth. It was the Garden of Eden. But when things stop doing what they were created to do, things stop working properly. Now, I said most things were created for good, Everything God created for good. Unfortunately, mankind has created occasionally things that were created for evil. There are evil people because they're not following God's design for them. Sometimes men create something with the purpose of doing something destructive, doing something evil. However, it was still created for a purpose. Everything is created with Purpose. Does that make sense? But when things, even those that were created good or for good, when they're used incorrectly, or if they're not used, who benefits from them? When God transforms us and gives us our new life, He recreates us for purpose. That's what Paul just said in that verse. He created us, made us new, but He created us not just to exist. He created us to do good works, which were determined for us before we were recreated. He said, I am changing you, making you into a useful tool that I can use to fulfill my mission. That's why we become a new creation. When God transforms us and gives us our new life, He recreates us with purpose. We're reborn to carry His message to a lost and dying world. That is the reason He leaves us here. Wouldn't it be great if we just accepted Christ? It's okay, you're part of the family. Come live with me forever. He says, no. I need you there because you have a purpose. I need you there to tell other people the good news, and to disciple them, to bring them along on the journey. I am recreating you so you can be part of my plan. Our relationship with God is the hub that unites and gives purpose to every other part of our lives. Everything else we do, once we come to Christ, everything else we do should be done with the realization that we live in Christ. There is no life without Christ. John tells us in John 15 that we must abide in Him if we want to bear fruit. He says, I am the vine, you are the branches. If you remain in me and I in you, then you will bear much fruit. Apart from me, you can do nothing. How long does a branch live if it's separated from the vine? How much fruit does it produce if it's separated from the vine? He says, I am the vine, you are the branches. Remain in me, and if you remain in me, then you will bear much fruit. Apart from me, you can do nothing. Now, I want to emphasize there, it doesn't necessarily mean nothing. How many of you have learned that you can do things without God? We can do things separate from God, but we can't do anything lasting without God. Anything we do on our own 
will eventually be burned up. It'll eventually amount to nothing. And some things that even though we thought we were successful for a while with them, eventually they're going to fade away. We can do nothing of value, nothing lasting without doing it for Christ. Psalms 127.1 says, unless the Lord builds the house, the builders labor in vain. We can do it without him, but if we want it to last, we need to do it in him and for him. As followers of Jesus, the first fear, our relationship with God is the most important, and it must receive our prime attention and effort, because unless our relationship with God is where it needs to be, it's impossible to have true success in the other areas of our lives. We get to chapter 4 of Ephesians, and Paul shifts his focus from the central importance of our relationship with God, and he begins to redress the effect that our relationship with God should have our relationships with God's people in the church. So the second sphere is our relationship with God's family. As disciples who are growing in our relationships with God, we should also be growing in our relationships with God's family. We should be growing in our relationships with our brothers and sisters in Christ. And you say, but I don't like them. Well, that's something you need to deal with because they are your brothers and sisters. Have you ever heard a saying, you pick your friends, you can't pick your family? Some of you wish you could pick your family, right? We're family. The Bible teaches us that we need to learn to get along. Yeah, you don't right now. So do something about it. Figure it out. Of course, it does take two people. But what does the Bible say? as long as it depends on you. you. You're not responsible for what someone else does. But in everything, as far as it depends on you, do everything to love others, do everything to forgive others, do everything to relate to others, because you're not going to be held accountable for what somebody else did. You will be held accountable for what you did. As members of God's family, when we belong to Christ, we need to learn how to relate to others. Many of the earliest Christians, and in many countries still today, people lost their earthly families when they joined the spiritual family. The church is God's answer to the spiritual, emotional, and physical needs that people have. If everyone in the world were following God and loving God as they should, Everybody's needs would be met because everybody would be looking out for everybody. But most people don't have the support they need from their physical families. So they need their spiritual brothers and sisters to come alongside them and meet those needs. Some of you here have strong physical families. You might feel you don't need that support from your church family. So, well, I don't need anybody. I've got everything I need. I'm financially set. I've got my, my earthly family. I don't need anybody else. Well, praise God. But you know what? There are people here that need you. If you've got it all together, you still need relationships with other people because other people need you. We shouldn't strive to build relationships within the church simply because of what we need. We should look to build relationships with those that need us. Paul emphasizes the church family is led by spiritual shepherds, evangelists, and teachers who are given the task to prepare and equip God's people 
for works of service so that the body of Christ may be built up and move towards maturity. He also emphasizes that every member of the body needs to work together, building each other up in love. Brothers and sisters in Christ should be willing to put others first and put aside their own desires for the good of the mission and for the good of everyone else in the group. That's why I've been pushing so hard for life groups. We were not created to live life alone. We were created to need each other. And right now you may say, I don't need anybody. Well, there's going to come a point in your life where you will need somebody. And then you'll say, why didn't I take time to reach out and build relationships? And if it never comes to that, think about the people that could use you. We need each other. Sometimes we need others. Sometimes they need us. But we must have relationships in order to give and to receive appropriately. Now, I can't force relationships, but I won't give up preaching about them and encouraging them because that's a biblical mandate. Encouraging and providing a network of life groups is a way to equip and encourage you to fulfill the purpose that God has for you. And that's my job, is to equip you. Part of the way I equip you is getting you to do what the Bible says and by trying to help you surround you with other people that can help you with that. We spur each other on. We did that whole series on, on the one another's. We can't do the one another's without others. You, it's impossible to do the one another's on your own. We need other people. So Paul goes on in chapter 4 to talk about how to deal with conflict and anger through kindness, compassion, and forgiveness. And he says we need to learn to speak the truth in love. Disciples who are growing up in Christ are developing the understanding and the ability to have healthy and helpful relationships in the church. They're committed to the body of Christ, and they're committed to using their gifts to serve their brothers and sisters. If you look carefully at Jesus' conversations with his disciples, you'll find that a lot of them had to do with how they related to each other. As I was writing this, I'm thinking, I wish I knew the rest of the story. Remember when Peter came to Jesus and said, how many times do I need to forgive? Now, I don't know which one of the disciples he had just had this fight with. But I, I'm guessing that what happened prior to that is maybe John just offended him for the seventh time. And the law in those days said you only have to forgive somebody seven times, and after that you're free to punch them in the nose. So Peter's like, okay, I'm ready to punch this guy. Jesus, I fulfilled the commitment that our laws say. Seven times he's offended me. Seven times he's called me that name or whatever it was. Jesus, do I have your permission now to deck this guy? And Jesus, uh-uh. That's not the way it works in my kingdom. You keep forgiving. Do not harbor. In fact, Jesus said, if we want God to give us anything, we have to forgive first. If we ask him for anything, he says, if you're coming to the altar, you're asking for something, and you remember that you have unforgiveness in your heart towards somebody, forgive them first, because God will not give us anything if we're harboring unforgiveness. A lot of his conversations were teaching the disciples not just how to relate to God, 
But because they belong to God, he says, I need to teach you how to relate to others. Because as members of this family, we don't treat each other the way the world treats each other. We treat each other the way God would treat us. The third relationship, third sphere, is relationships at home. Paul addresses the third sphere of relationships starting with chapter 5 of the Ephesians, and 5 and 6. He says, he describes what the Christian home should look like and how it should function. He describes how a Christian husband should love and lead his wife and how a wife should love and respect her husband. He then writes about the responsibility that Christian fathers and mothers have to raise their children in the Lord and about how children should obey the parents. You know, one of the, the sad things that's happened to the church, at least in America, over the last, I don't know how many years, I mean, it's been happening even since I was a kid, is parents start leaving, have started to leave all of the spiritual rearing of their kids to the church. It's the church's job to teach the kids what the Bible says. It's the church's job to teach the kids how to be responsible. And I remember when I was a children's pastor and parents would come to me and say, I've been bringing my kid to your ministry for five years. You haven't straightened them out yet. I said, I got one hour a week with them. The rest of the time they're with you and they're with the schools and they're with their friends. You have more influence over them than I do. You need to take your responsibility and raise your kids to have respect and to tell the truth and to seek God and, and all those things. He also teaches children that they need to respect their parents. I'm looking around. We don't have very many kids in the room today. But he teaches kids that they need to learn how to honor and respect their parents. If you're a Christian, if you're a follower of Christ, it must affect your relationships with others. And that includes in your home. Now, this is a very important part of a disciple's life. It's one that sometimes gets ignored. Unfortunately, some people think they can hang their Christianity on the hook when they enter their house. They say, okay, I've been watching my behavior all, all day long. I've been, I, I, I've been trying to do the right things. Now I'm home. I can relax. I don't have to be on my best behavior in my house now. And so they let everything just hit the fan. That wasn't Paul's opinion. Paul knew that having a right relationship with God includes having a right relationship with our spouse and with our children. We can't compartmentalize Christianity in a way that doesn't apply at home. As a matter of fact, if a disciple's mission is to make disciples who make disciples, one of the first places we should do that is in our home. Husbands, you should be helping your wife become a better disciple. Wives, you should be helping your husband become a better disciple. Parents, you should be helping your children learn what it means to be disciples. It's not something we do out there and forget at home. We need to start in the home. The hope of every Christian parent is that their children will also become believers who walk faithfully with the Lord. You know what? That doesn't just happen. It takes effort. It takes intentionality. We have to make the decision, I will do this. There are so many important Christian principles that must be lived out in the home, including all the aspects of love, like selflessness, consideration, patience, 
and forgiveness. The proper use of our tongues. That's one that people sometimes let go when they get home, isn't it? Hard work, responsibility, financial management, time management. All those things need to happen in the home. It's no surprise that Paul explains to Timothy and Titus that a man's home life is a good measurement of his spiritual maturity and whether or not he's a good candidate for elder or deacon. Unfortunately, we often don't see what goes on behind closed doors. And I've talked to some of you and what your upbringing was like, and some of you had parents who were on the church board or were in leadership positions. I know I, know, I have friends whose parents were pastors, even well-respected pastors, but yet at home, what they were portraying in the pulpit wasn't happening at home. We don't always see what's happening at the home. But you know, and you need to make sure that your Christianity is happening in front of your children too. You need to make sure that you're a disciple, you're a follower of Christ in the home. Because your children are watching and they're learning from what you do. Even pastors sometimes are guilty of putting on a good show when they're in public. But they neglect to fully follow God in their homes, in front of their families. Following Christ isn't something we do only when we're at church and our Christian brothers and sisters are watching. Following Christ is something we should do 24-7. Which brings us to the fourth sphere. Our relationships with the world. The final sphere of our lives is relationship with the world. Our relationships with people outside our church family and outside of our physical family. That includes our relationships in the workplace and at school or at the marketplace. Did you know you're supposed to be a follower of Jesus? You're supposed to be a disciple of His at Walmart? You're supposed to be a disciple of His in the line at the restaurant or when the waiter or the waitress doesn't serve it exactly the way you want to. Now, it's okay to think this wasn't the way I ordered it. But how you do that matters. Because you are a follower of Jesus. How do you think Jesus would do it? Well, first off, Jesus would probably just say, okay, I zap you, you're now medium instead of medium rare. But anyway, that was a sideline. That just came to me. I know it wasn't inspired. In Ephesians chapter 6, Paul addresses Christian workers. He refers to them as slaves. You read, it's actually going to talk about slaves. But... We need to understand that when Paul wrote this, 90%, it's estimated that 90% of the Roman world at the time of Paul was in slavery of some, some type or another. So really, that was their employment. Now, when we think of slavery, we always think of the American slavery. We think of you know, all the abuses in slavery. There was some of that going on in the Roman Empire. Most of it wasn't that way. It was simply, you work for me and I will provide a place for you to live. I will provide food for you. You know, I'll give you what you need. It was really their employment. They weren't getting paid anything. It's just, you're working for me. And sometimes it's because you owed somebody something. You borrowed and, and you couldn't pay it back. And it's okay to pay off your debt. You're now going to be my servant. You're now going to be my slave. I will provide everything you need, but you're working. So really, it, when he addresses the slaves and masters, it's the equivalent of what most of us do daily. We go to work to provide what we need to support our families. 
Paul offers instructions for Christians who find themselves on both sides of the employment relationship. He makes it clear that when we're in the world, we represent Christ in all that we do. He says, no Christian simply works for an earthly boss. Rather, we work for our heavenly boss. And he talks to earthly bosses. He says, you're the boss. But remember, you're working under your heavenly boss. So how do you think your heavenly boss would treat those who you're overseeing? How do you think your heavenly boss would treat those employees? How do you think your heavenly boss would treat those customers? It's not just our job. It's part of our mission. It's part of being a follower of Jesus. Our whole life comes under that authority, not just Sunday mornings. Another important aspect of our relationship with the world is the way we serve as missionaries to a lost and dying world both in the workplace and in the neighborhood and other places where we encounter non-Christians. Paul asked for prayer about this in Ephesians chapter 6, verses 19 to 20. You can look that up. Every believer is not called to be a full-time career ministry or missionary. But every believer is called to be a full-time disciple and a full-time missionary. Because a missionary is simply someone who takes the gospel to other people. You may not be called to stand up here on Sunday morning. God may not ask you to give up everything and go to Africa or China or Russia or somewhere. But you are still called to be a full-time missionary wherever you find yourself. Starts at home, your neighborhood, your workplace, wherever you are. We are all called to be full-time. Jesus doesn't have part-time disciples. We're called to be full-time disciples and full-time missionaries. Yes, we work. We do other things. But as we're doing that, we're looking for opportunities to present Christ. He has you at your workplace because there are people there that need Jesus. He has you at your school because there are people there that need Jesus. You are living in your apartment complex or your trailer park or your neighborhood because you have neighbors that need Jesus. Jesus, we need to see everything as our mission, and we need to take our mission seriously. There's a world out there that needs to see and hear about Jesus, but the only way they're going to see and hear about Jesus is from us. You know, most of those people are not going to come in here on Sunday so I can talk to them about Jesus, but you run into them every day. We need to tell them, but not just tell them, we need to model it for them, because if they don't see us modeling it, then we're trying to tell them they're going to reject the gospel message. We talked about that a little bit last week. But unfortunately, most people will never see Jesus, because those who claim to be followers of Jesus don't live any different than those that are in the world. Let me say it again. Most people will never see Jesus because people who claim to be Christians, and I use that term very loosely, because Christian means Christ-like. And if I claim to be a Christian, yet I'm not reflecting Christ, why would anybody want what I have even if I try to present it to them? 
And most people who claim to be followers of Christ are not living any differently than the people who don't profess Christianity at all. That's a sad fact. And you may disagree with it. But recent studies have bared this out. Let me just give you a few statistics that just came out here in the last couple of years in surveys that were done with people who call themselves Christians, okay? It's the first question. They asked some leading questions. Of, you know, are you born again? Yes. Do you go to church regularly? Yes. Do you, you know, they ask these questions to try to define who they, these are people who claim to be Christians. And then they also surveyed those who don't claim to be Christian. And they found that the divorce rates among Christians and non-Christians are almost identical. There's only a couple of percentage points difference between those who claim to be followers of Christ and those who don't. That's sad. You know, because a lot of this is solved just by loving other people more than we love ourselves. You know, it doesn't matter that you burnt my toast. I'll make something else if I don't like it. I'm not going to get in a fight over it or whatever because people get into divorce for stupid reasons. I know there are some good reasons. There are some reasons that, you know, it's necessary. But most of the reasons people have are not necessary. It's just people say, you know what? I don't love you anymore. I don't want to love you anymore. Good riddance. I'm going to find somebody else. This one's sad. The percentages of those who regularly view pornography, not just men, but women too, the percentages of those who regularly view pornography are almost identical between Christians and non-Christians. So why does the world need what we have? Domestic violence, drug abuse, alcohol abuse are just as prevalent among Christians as non-Christians. I didn't make these things up. Now, this one's not at least equal, but one in four people living together outside of marriage call themselves Christians. I'm a Christian, but it's okay. I can live in this relationship. Add to those things and other statistics, add to those the statistic that those who call themselves Christians are more than two times as likely to have a racist attitude as non-Christians. Okay, so not only are we living like the world, but we're more racist. We hold more prejudice against other people than those who aren't Christians. So where are they going to see Jesus? Why are they going to want what we have? And I know I'm not talking to anybody here in this room, okay? I'm talking to somebody else, okay? But they're watching us online, so bear with me. Is it any wonder that Christianity is no longer appealing to the masses? In the days of the early church, the days of Acts, people were attracted to Christ because the disciples, the followers, lived differently. And people said, I want to be a part of that. What is it in our life that makes people want to be a part of what we have? I'm not sure what's worse, though. Professing Christians who don't reflect Christ or Christians who deliberately hide Christ from the world because we're supposed to be like Christ. Did Christ hide it? No. His mission was to Tell people about his father. We say we're like him, and yet we don't feel that we need to spread the message that he spread. 
A recent survey by George Barna, this one just came to me just this week as I was preparing this, the, the newest study by James Barna. This one just came in. Man, I could use that on Sunday. 57% of Christians, okay, Christians, people who say they're Christians, 57% of Christians that responded to this survey said that what they believe is a personal matter and they never talk about it or try to live it out in an obvious way outside the church because nobody needs to know it. I know that's what society teaches us. Yet you see other religions, you see people who believe in the devil, they're not hiding it. 57% of the Christians said, it's between me and God. Nobody else needs to know. And yet, what did Jesus say? Let your light shine before men. Don't hide it under the bushel. Go into the highways and hedges and compel them. The, the notion that it's a personal matter and nobody needs to know, that's not biblical. The biblical mandate is live it out in front of people. Our relationship with God should affect our relationships with the world. And if you can work in the same place for more than a couple months, and nobody there knows that you're different, and knows that you're a follower of Christ, there's something wrong. Even if you don't preach it, they should know. Because you should live differently than everyone else. I've shared this story. Some of you have heard this, but there's a lot of new people here. Years ago, I worked as a painting contractor. There was a man that worked for one of the builders that I did quite a bit of painting for. He was the foreman for this builder, so I had to deal directly with him on many occasions. And I always dreaded any encounter with this man because he never had anything good to say about me or anyone else. He had a very critical spirit. Every, and every conversation that came out of his mouth was also full of profanity. He had the foulest mouth of anybody. And I don't, you know, construction workers aren't known for you know, their, their, their vocabulary. But his was worse than anybody else. One year I accompanied our Royal Ranger group to a ranger camp. Back then it was called powwow. And I was amazed to see this man at the camp. I found out after asking around that he was the senior commander for one of the churches in our area. And I was flabbergasted. Who in their right mind would put this man in charge of mentoring young boys? But again, as I already said, unfortunately, we don't always know what's going on outside of what we see on Sundays. It bothered me for weeks. So the next time I ran into this man on the job site, I asked him about it. I told him that prior to ranger camp, my only experience with him had been on the job sites. And to think that he would be a leader in a church would have never entered my mind. I also found out that he had been on the church board for years. He informed me that he was a sincere follower of Christ, but that he had learned how to separate his spiritual life from his work life. He informed me that construction was a tough business with tough people, and the only way to get respect was to speak their language and to get what you need to have done through intimidation. That's the only way you can make it out here. So I've got my Sunday life, and I've got this life. I've separated. I am a devout follower, a devout follower. I am sincere in following Christ. But it doesn't affect this. There's something wrong with that picture. He said, nobody in the church, they, some of them know I'm in construction, but they've never been to my job site. Nobody in the church knows what I'm like on the job, and they don't need to know, because this is my job. That's my ministry. 
He said he knew that the boys were watching him. And when he was out with the boys, he knew that he had to be on his best behavior in front of them. He was like a Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde. He had two completely different lives. But what baffled me was he justified those two lives and said, it's okay. I can be one thing at church and I can be something else out here. Where does the Bible teach that? God's not looking for people that want to be part-time followers. He wants people that will make him the center of their lives and let everything else flow from who they are. This is who I am. Now the rest of my life is going to be lived because of what I am. I go to school because Christ needs me. Now, I don't, but I, if there's anybody here's a student. I go to school because there are people in my school that need Jesus. I go to work because there are people at my workplace that need Jesus. I go to the grocery store not just because my cupboards are bare, but because there's somebody there who needs Jesus. And I love it when I go to a store and I see a couple people praying in the aisles of the store. And I've done that on occasions. You know, so many times you walk by somebody or we hear about what's going on in their life and we just ignore it. God said, hey, there's a need. Are you going to be me? Are you going to do what I would do if I was here? I wouldn't ignore that. I would stop now. Sometimes they won't want prayer, but you can at least ask, can I pray with you? And they'll just say, okay, I'll pray with you tomorrow morning. Can we pray right here? Can we pray? Can I help meet that need? When we departmentalize the various parts of our lives or put things in separate boxes, we limit what God can accomplish here on earth. Christ should be the focus of everything that we do. Colossians chapter 3, verse 17 says, and whatever you do, we could say in everything you do, in what, whatever you do, whether in word or in deed, do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to the Father through Him. In everything, in all circumstances, we don't follow Christ here and not follow Him there. You know what? Being a follower of Christ, we didn't talk about this one because Paul didn't address this one in Ephesians, but it's also who are you when there's nobody around? When you're not around the church brothers and sisters, when you're not around your family, when there's nobody from the world watching, are you still following Christ in those situations? Because Jesus isn't looking for part-time followers. He says, follow me all the time, in everything, 24 